Here at Waterstone, we focus on living and loving like Jesus. In practice, this means that we connect with one another, engage in justice, and serve sacrificially. We are so glad that you're here and invite you to join us in person. If you're able to attend weekend services, we gather on Saturdays at 5.30 and Sundays in person and online at 10. We look forward to connecting with you. Coming in our online audience this morning, watching across the, the country. Welcome in, and uh, we want you all to know, and those watching online, that the high point of our worship this morning is going to be after the message when we partake of communion together at the Lord's table. So uh, you at home may want to grab some elements, graham crackers, milk, whatever uh, you have that's uh, close to you. And uh, you in here, um, if you didn't get any, the ushers in the back have some and just raise your hand right now and they'll find you and get you the elements so that when we arrive there, everyone is ready to be at the table. A couple of things before we start. Um, there's a hand over here. And before we start is that uh, around the, during the pandemic, we uh, stopped taking an offering during the service. And uh, amazingly, we're still here. Uh, <laughs> but uh, one of the things that we, we have talked about a lot on our staff and our worship planning team is we don't want to lose the liturgy of that offering time. And what that means is that, that giving is not just you giving to a nonprofit to support the mission of the church. It's more than that. It's higher than that. That actual, our, actually our giving is a worship act and experience where we are saying to Jesus that we treasure you so much that we are willing to live on less and give you more. And uh, that is, uh, you know, put kind of uh, in serious business when it's about our money. And so we want to, first of all, just acknowledge that uh, to, to, they that when we give, we are worshiping. And uh, also, we always want to be thankful for your continued generosity. If you would like to begin giving to Waterstone, you can find information how to do that on our website. Uh, many uh, of us still like to give in person and even take that moment of prayer and thanksgiving. And there's offering boxes in the back of this room and out in the hub to continue to do that. Second thing that I want uh, us to know as a congregation is that two weeks ago we mentioned to you that we've lost one of our global partners, Rick, uh, who serves in Central Asia. Rick and Sue have served there among the Dungan people for over 25 years. And Rick passed away of a heart attack in his apartment there in Central Asia. We're all still stunned and shocked. Rick decided, and Sue, that they would bury Rick's body with the Dungan people. And so his body is buried in Central Asia. But Sue is back. We had a good time connecting with her this past week. And we're going to have a memorial service here at Waterstone uh, this Saturday at 1 o'clock in this room. And even if you didn't know Rick, he was representing you for years and years, taking the gospel to uh, people in Central Asia. So we would invite you to show up here and stand with Sue and sing songs of worship, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. So, one o'clock this Saturday, the memorial for Rick. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we come to you with the words of uh, one of the great preachers of the past, John Calvin, who said that in you, Jesus, 
are hidden all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge and hope. So in this moment, grant us that reverence and humility without which no one will see you or understand your truth. Calvin would go on to say that we also acknowledge that faith is not only a choice and a decision that we make, before even that, it's a gift. And Lord, today, families in Waterstone have lost loved ones this week. Families here have gotten hard, life-changing diagnosis from their health. Families here have had relational struggles with friends and family and children. People here at Waterstone have lost their jobs this week. People here in this room continue to grieve. And so we pray that you would give the gift of faith to trust you even in the darkness and in the struggle. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. We continue our journey through the early, original, authentic Christianity that swept through an empire uh, in the unprecedented words of Jesus in Acts 1-8 when he said, I will put the power of my Holy Spirit on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the world. Did I say empire? I meant empires. It continues today. One of the recent kind of phenomenons in the publishing world has been a batch of literature by scholars who are not believers, but are writing about the Christian influence in today's culture. Let me give you some of the names, and you've probably heard some of them before. We, we've shared some of them. Larry Seidentop, Tom Holland, Rodney Stark, Kyle Harper, Joseph Henrik. None of them are Christians, but they have given their lives to scholarship which acknowledges the influence of Christ and the church on the culture from the early church to now. In fact, here I, 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 I read a book on a plane last week called The Air We Breathe by a filmmaker named Glenn Scrivener. And Scrivener acknowledges this publishing phenomenon, and he writes this. Western civilization is a vast, centuries-long exercise in Jesus smuggling. At first, it was overt. Now, it's covert. Today, whether we're talking about human rights or diversity and inclusion or the miracle of scientific intelligibility or humanitarian ideals, we are complicit in an immense Bible trafficking operation. When we speak of humanity, history, freedom, progress, or enlightenment values, with the significance now attached to those terms, we are carrying on a Christian conversation. And then he goes on to quote from another one. And I'm curious, I'm going to ask for a show of hands. How many of you have ever heard of the name of a Canadian sociologist named Jordan Peterson? Yeah, he's big. He's influential. 
He's not a professing Christian, though he says, and I quote, I try to act like one. Jordan Peterson writes this about the choice to be made in Western culture. And it kind of sounds like we're having the invitation early. So here we are. This is the invitation. You've got to make a decision about this. And this is Jordan Peterson's words. I've got the choice of believing two impossible things. I can either believe that the world is constituted so that God took on flesh and was crucified and rose three days later, or I can believe that human beings invented this unbelievably preposterous story that has stretched into every atom of culture. And it isn't obvious to me that the second hypothesis is any easier to believe than the first. Because the more you investigate the manifestations of the story of Christ, the more insanely complicated and far-reaching it becomes. How does the church continue to endure and have influence, to use Peterson's words, on every atom of culture? I submit to you today that it knows this by learning how and what to fight for. The church continues to endure and influence by knowing what to fight for. The gospel of Jesus Christ. The news. Now, you and I both know that over the years, the church has struggled to hold on to that main priority of fighting for the gospel, and we get tempted to fight over lesser things. How many of you have ever, and if you've been around the church for a while, uh, been involved in like a church dispute, a split, a schism? You know, in the Baptist world, church splits are called church plants, so a church plant. <laughs> Raise your hand. How many of you have, oh boy, all right. Uh, a few years ago, uh, I, I filed this. It's, a, it's by a blogger named Tom Rainier, a church blogger, and he uh, did a Twitter. Uh, is, that, is that how you talk about that, did a Twitter? He did a Twitter, help me, Paul. He did a Twitter survey, <laughs> tweeted. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> you want to take over, Paul? No, no. <laughs> he tweeted a, a survey, and uh, he asked people from, you know, his, his, who, who follow him on tweets, and he, how to share the things that they've seen in their lives churches fight over. He, they, he listed the 25 top ones. I'm just going to give five because we've already wasted enough time on my ignorance. <laughs> the first one, one person tweeted in a fight over whether or not to build a children's playground or to use the land for a cemetery. Whoa. Dying to hear how that one turned out. Uh, <laughs> A deacon accusing another deacon of sending an anonymous letter and deciding to settle the matter in the parking lot. <laughs> a church argument and vote to decide if a clock in the worship center should be removed. Obviously not. 
Two more. A fight over which picture of Jesus to put in the foyer. I'm like, who is actually there? I mean, last one. This one kind of hits home because we, we do this. A church member was chastised because she brought vanilla syrup to the coffee server. It looked too much like a liquor bottle. <laughs> Jesus knows we fight over lesser things. But we're going to learn from a church fight what is worth fighting for. The gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, I want to tell the story. And then I want to, at the end of the story, just call out two implications that I think speak to us as a church and as individuals. So first, the story. We begin with the setting, the verses that immediately precede the chapter, chapter are in chapter 14. And we, uh, I want to read them because uh, you'll get the sense that things are really in an interesting and good place here. From Italia they, which is Paul and Silas, whom the Antioch church had sent out on the first missionary journey, sailed back to Antioch, where they had been committed to the grace of God for the work they had now completed. First missionary journey complete. Wow. On arriving there, they gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them. This was in what today is the south of modern Turkey, the south of modern Greece, and re reported all that God had done through them, how he opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. And they stayed there a long time with the disciples. Things are in a good place. I mean, the first missionary journey, extremely effective, an avalanche of followers of Jesus coming. And uh, in fact, in chapter 13, there's two phrases that Luke, with an editorial comment, they jump out. The first one, he says, the word of God impacted the whole region. Imagine that, the whole region. And then he says, the believers were full of joy and the Holy Spirit. Wow. Things are good. But it was an extremely good but extremely hard journey. Paul and Barnabas were beaten with bare fists. They were stoned and left for dead in another city. In another city, they got violently ill and thought they were going to die. And in another riot in a city, they were slandered and run out of town. So you can imagine the great need that Paul and Barnabas had for renewal, for refreshing, and just being together with the church in Antioch. And everything was good. They stayed there for a while until they had an open mic time in a Sunday morning service. <laughs> and some people, Paul says, Luke says, certain people in a later letter, which we'll get to, Paul calls them troublemakers. One of them grabs the mic and he says something so wrong so egregious that Paul and Barnabas, along with a team from the church and the church itself, decide we have to break the rest and break the renewal, and we have to send you, Paul and Barnabas, with this team on a 250-mile journey south to go back to Jerusalem from which these people came, and you have to have a church fight. Now, again, just sit in this for a moment. I mean, this is, this is Paul... This is like Arthur Brooks, who teaches at Harvard, said that Paul in the human history is the most successful CEO and uh, in, in entrepreneur in the world, in all of human history. And you say, Arthur Brooks, I know you're from Harvard, but how can you say that? 
Well, consider this. You know you've been successful if 2,000 years from now, over 2 billion people are reading your writings on a weekly basis. But evidently, Paul, who could have said, eh, things are in a good place. Why bother in a theological debate? I've got better things to do. Why did he pull out and say, nope, Jerusalem, here we come. What was so wrong? What was so egregious about what was said? Here it is, chapter 15, verse 1, we read, certain people, the troublemakers, the legalists, the people who want to add on extra things to the gospel, come down from Judea to Antioch, and we're teaching the believers, here it is, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. Whoa. Whoa. There's some add-on here. There's Jesus plus Moses. There's legalism, rules and regs and, and rituals that have to be now included in order for a Gentile to become a Christian. In other words, and by the way, do this. I mean, if someone asks you this week, hey, what would you talk about in church? I'll give you the hand motion so you can remember it. What these certain people are saying is that a Gentile, go ahead, right hand, a Gentile has to become a Jew in order to become a Christian. Got it? Let's do it again. A Gentile has to become a Jew in order to become a Christian. Got it? That's what is being said. Now, there's two kinds of responses to that. The first is kind of my response. I'm in nine on the Enneagram, which means I'm a peacekeeper, which means I hate conflict, which means if conflict breaks out in the room, you'll find me stacking chairs in the concourse. <laughs> Just ask the staff, ask the elders. That's how I'm wired. I hate conflict. So my response would go something like this. Okay, boy, wow. Something about that sounds really wrong. But, you know, uh, on the one hand, I can, I can see, I get it. I mean, for 2,000 years to this point, whenever a Gentile wanted to become part of the family of God, they had to be what? Circumcised and baptized in a baptismal cleansing. No matter how old you were, your family and all the males in it, if you wanted to become part of God's people for 2,000 years, you had to be circumcised and you had to be baptized. Okay? And at this point, Christianity is still very young, which means where is it starting? Paul and Barnabas, the first thing they would do when they got to a city would be what? They'd go into the synagogue, which was where the Jewish people worshipped. And where many of the same rites and rituals were still in play. So, I... I I kind of get it. I mean, hey, even Jesus was circumcised and baptized. I get it. It sounds wrong to me, but I, I can understand it. Paul was not a nine in the Enneagram. In verse 2, we see how he and Barnabas responded. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. Now, that's very kind English language. In the Greek, that word is one word, sharp dispute, and it's used in other places in the New Testament to talk about riots and revolts. 
This is serious emotional business going on. These are Christians being hard with one another. It's so important that they're fighting over it. A church fight. Now, Paul and Barnabas, along with the team, they travel down to Jerusalem. They're going to have a a church fight. And in verses 5 and 6, first of all, you see it repeated again. Here's the topic sentence. You know, whenever you have these big church meetings, people get up and read papers. And they hand out the papers. And on the top of the papers, the topic sentence. Here's the topic sentence. Gentiles must be required, uh, circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. And then the apostles and elders, as you can see, they go into executive session. And then at the end of this, and scholars think this probably went on for days, but Luke, in his mercy in writing this, really boils it down to us for us to three speeches. And even the way these speeches are given and shared and ordered, it's brilliant. It's brilliant the way the early church handled this church fight. The first one to speak is Peter. In verses 7 and 11, as Joel read it in the text, you heard his speech. Um, I think uh, I'll just tell it. The, the, what Peter is going to do is say, look, from the very be- By the way, this is the last time Peter speaks in the book of Acts. But he says, I'm going to tell you the story. And he's alluding to Acts chapter 10 about when God gave Peter a vision of all the animals in the world, the unclean animals, and God tells Peter, eat, eat, bacon, eat. And Peter begins to realize, oh, no, I mean, we're not under all the ceremonial laws. Oh, Gentiles are being welcomed into the family of God. And then God orchestrates through dreams and visions this encounter with Peter and the Italian battalion commander Cornelius. And they meet, and Peter shares the gospel, the good news that Jesus is king. And Cornelius receives Jesus and repents and is filled with the Holy Spirit. So Peter's recounting this story that the family of God, it's Italian. Grazie mia. You know. The Gentiles are in, folks. And then Peter says, verses 10 and 11, now then why do we try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke? Like circumcision, like the laws of Moses. Why do we do that that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to do? It couldn't even save the Jews. All the laws. No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that we are saved just as they are. Now, little juicy gossip around all. There's a backstory here. So when uh, Paul is traveling from Antioch to Jerusalem, scholars believe he wrote the letter of Galatians to the churches in southern Turkey and southern Greece. And he alludes to this incident of the dude getting up with the open mic and saying, you got to be circumcised and follow the law of Moses. And we know Peter was there when that happened. And what happened was Peter was so influenced that he began to withdraw from the Gentiles. And he stopped eating with uncircumcised people. And, well, let's read about it. This is really good. I don't know. I find it strangely encouraging that, like, the two top people in the organization, Peter and Paul, uh, can't get along. <laughs> Here it is. <laughs> when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separated himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the the circumcision group. 
The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy, so that by their hypocrisy, this is interesting, even Barnabas was led astray. Barnabas was a nine on the Enneagram, by the way. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to see Peter in front of them all. Did you hear that? In front of them all. You are a Jew. Yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles, he's quoting the argument Peter seems to be living here, know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. Can you imagine Peter being the first to speak, how blushed he might have been, lump in his throat, like, yeah, I fell down on this, but I was wrong, and I'm getting back up to put it right. Way to go, Peter. The second to speak is Paul and Barnabas, and they do the obligatory missionary PowerPoint of all the places they traveled in southern Turkey and southern Greece. And then the third to speak is James. So you have like Peter and Paul and Barnabas and then James. Now James, James is the younger brother of Jesus. Technically, right, half-brother. He, at this point, was probably in his 50s, 60 years old. They called him camel knees because he prayed so much. He's the unquestioned leader of the church in Jerusalem. And he gets up and gives a speech. And what we need to see about this speech again, and it's been read, but what he does is he quotes from one of a hundred different places in the First Testament he could have quoted from. He quotes from Amos chapter 9. And he said, look, it's in Scripture. This has been God's plan all along. That when David's tent fell and Jerusalem was carried off into exile, there's a new age coming when Jews and Gentiles will rebuild David's tent. There's a new age coming when Jesus will not only be the son of David for the Jews, but he will be the son of David for the whole world. And a new age where Jews and Gentiles become Christians. And then Peter or James has these four little stipulations at the end of his speech. We'll talk more about those in a minute, like don't eat meat sacrificed to idols, don't eat blood. Don't eat strangled animals and stay away from sexual promiscuity. We'll come back to that. And then at the end, the result of the church fight is a letter. And uh, with the letter, it's sent out to all the churches around the Mediterranean cradle that are in existence. And the gist of the letter is, look, these dudes who came and talked at Antioch, they were wrong. And they had no authority and no business to do that. We do not put burdens on the Gentiles. Here we go. A Gentile does not have to become a Jew to become a Christian. No. But stay away from meat sacrificed to idols, strangled animals, blood, and sexual promiscuity. And they send with Judas and Silas. Silas, who will become a name that you'll hear about in the weeks because he becomes Paul's new traveling for the second and third missionaries journey. But all of this now with the letter going out As a result of the church fight, the churches find healing, health, strength. And by the way, are you thinking this with me? 
It's because of that church fight and that letter that you're in the seats today, Gentiles. Mm -hmm. So what do we take away from this? What are the implications? What should we learn from a church fight? What should a church fight for? The gospel. Jesus. Alone. Live the life we should have lived. Died the death we should have died. Resurrected from the grave. Ascended to heaven. Now rules all things. That's the gospel. And for that, we fight. To keep it clear to keep it accessible, to keep it moving. We fight for the gospel. But as we fight for the gospel, what's interesting is two other things come that really shape the church. We fight for the gospel first because it gives and, 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 and builds a beautiful, irresistible community. Community. So in the letter, you may have caught that phrase, it jumps out a little bit in verse 28 in the letter. It says that uh, this seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. How did the early church make this decision? The answer, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to make this decision. I want you to think about that for a minute. In a culture where 80% of American evangelicals think you can be a Christian and live the Christian life, 80% think you can live the Christian life and not be part of a church. Evidently, in our culture, there's many who believe that essentially for making the turns of life and navigating it, it's the Holy Spirit and me, and we can make it work. The council votes no. The council says it's the Holy Spirit and us. The, the council says it's us believers getting together and sitting under the authority of Scripture, wild guys like Amos, and opening the word together and saying this is how Jesus rules the church, through the word. And so we put ourselves under the word and we involved ourselves in this together and sometimes we fight together. Sometimes we give other people hunting licenses to help us in our decisions and in our lives when things are going well or aren't going well. We invite people into that. It's called small groups. It's called Wednesdays at Waterstone. It's called men's ministry, women's ministries, 20s, 30s group. We get into a part of a group. Why? To sit under the authority and teaching of Scripture and to get into one another's lives by either challenge or affirmation. Prayer, ministry. We, we don't do it just for ourselves. We do it so that we can fulfill our calling to the body of Christ, and that is to help other believers grow. We become this community of friendship, spiritual friendship. Every small group is a church council. Maybe a new way for you to look at it. And we sit under the authority of Scripture and we do it together. And sometimes, sometimes we speak truth in love. But we cannot do that alone and expect to grow. So 
Fighting for the gospel produces a community of spiritual friendship. But secondly, fighting for the gospel produces a, a community of other-centered living. Back to just for a minute, you probably thought, and I did too, man, those weird things at the end, like why is James and why is the letter saying stay away from sexual promiscuity, uh, temple sacrifices, blood? Well, in the main reason there is because in the ancient world, in pagan worship, that's what you had. Sexual promiscuity in the temples, eating strangled animals, drinking blood, all of that was present in temple pagan worship. If you want to read more about it, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul discusses it in depth. But what's, what's the letter encouraging the church to do? The letter is encouraging the church that says, when we become like Jesus, we live for others. So you can imagine if you sat down at a table with a Jewish person and you ate a rare steak dripping in blood, you would offend them. Paul's saying here, and the letter is saying here, this is not like about more rules. This is about when the gospel gets inside of you, it changes you to be more concerned for the other than yourself. What's happening here is this. Are you ready? Here we go. A Jew does not have to become a Gentile to become a Christian. It goes both ways. It goes always. When we become a believer, we live for others. Here we go. Other cultures. The Christian church should be the most ethnic affirming community that there is in the world. We should honor one another's cultures. As long as it's within the boundaries of Scripture, we honor one another's cultures and we prefer one another's cultures. That's what's going on with those stipulations at the end of the letter. The gospel produces this beautiful community of friendship and other-centeredness in terms of culture. And that's why we fight for the gospel. But the bigger reason, and lastly, we fight for the gospel be is because it produces a, a community of freedom. Freedom. The gospel lifts burdens off of people. The gospel is Jesus alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, period. No other rules, no other regulations. That's the gospel. No add-ons, not even Moses. The gospel lifts off the rules and regulations and the burdens. And this is what makes, by the way, Christianity different than all other religions, because all other religions, they give you good advice. Here's what you need to do in order to reach the divine. Here's what you need to do in order to become the divine. You need to do these sets of things and these sets of things and these practices and climb the ladder. But not so Christianity. In Christianity, the gospel is not do. The gospel is what? Done. It's a proclamation of what Jesus has done dying on the cross, disarming the powers of evil, conquering our worst enemies. Jesus now risen from the dead, ruling at the right hand of God, a new age, a new king. Jesus, that's the proclamation we make. And when you receive that and, and you enter that story and you give him, the king, your highest allegiance, the burdens are lifted off. What burden? Well, how about your past for one thing? 
Your past is lifted off you. I mean, I, I would guarantee in a group this size or watching online that some of us drug in sins from our past into this room this morning. Those secret things, those corners of your closet that maybe a few other people know, maybe no one knows, but every day like you think about it and it drags you down and pulls you down and it, it really keeps you from living a vibrant, sold-out Christian life because you're dragging your past mistakes and regrets around. I'm going to step out of my nine here for a minute and give you a pastoral word. What more do you think needs to be done with this sin, this burden, than Jesus dying on the cross? What more do you think needs to be done than Jesus himself living a perfectly sinless, faithful, pure life and then saying, when you allege to him as king, it's yours. You are declared righteous in the sight of God. Nothing between us. You're clean. What more needs to be done? The only one holding on to that past is you. You need to walk in grace. You need to be free. You need to say, Jesus... I'm choosing to trust you. It's gone, and you need to let it go. God is not holding that against you. Jesus is risen from the dead. Walk in freedom. There was a communion story. We're going to go to communion in about three minutes, but I want to tell this story real quick. Just thought of it. That's dangerous when this happens, but um, <laughs> Scottish congregation several years ago, there was an older gentleman, and they got to the point in the liturgy where they broke the bread and did the Lord's Supper. And during the service, this older senior gentleman had uh, one, one pew up, and on the end, seen this young woman during the service, just like weeping during the whole service, like, he had this sense that like someone, like the Holy Spirit may just brought her in. She had nowhere else to go and she's devastated and, and totally broken and weeping. And he notices that when the elements of communion are passed, that she doesn't partake. And so when they get to his row, what he does is he takes an extra set of the bread and the cup, the, the grape juice, and he... <laughs> And a Presbyter Scottish Presbyterian church gets up during the Holy Communion and goes and sits next to the young woman. And he gives her the elements. And he says, it's for you, lass. It's meant for sinners. S some of you when we partake of communion, your word, it's for you. It's meant for sinners. And you need to walk out of here in forgiveness. Jesus forgives you. On the authority of his word, 
on the historicity of his cross, on the promise of his resurrection, you are clean. There's nothing between you and God. He loves you. He wants you to walk with him. Lastly, though, so it, the gospel lists the burdens of inferiority. It lists, also lists the burdens of superiority, right? Each of us is a legalist at heart in some way. Uh-oh, here we go. <laughs> Each of us is a legalist at heart. We all have a list of people that we feel we're superior to. We're a legalist. We would have taken the mic in some fashion, right? You, some of you, you look down on people who don't have as much education as you do. Now, of course, it's not obvious. It's not like you're putting it on Facebook, but some of you look down on people who haven't suffered as much as you have. Some of you look down on people who don't have a job with as much authority and power as you have. What's your list, right? What's your list? Who are you superior to? Drug addicts? Alcoholics? People from... The other party, gay people, transgendered, prostitutes, oh boy, now we're getting into people who Jesus really likes, really loves. I mean, who, who, what's your list? Are you prepared to bring that out before Jesus today? Maybe, maybe it's this. Maybe, maybe this last week your roommate reminded you on Wednesday that, hey, today's trash day. You need to take out the trash. And you, like, other stuff maybe going on in your life, but you're, like, ripped. I mean, what? Do you think I'm stupid? Do you think I can't remember to take out the trash on Wednesdays? And your roommate, in their grace, says, well, you did forget last week. But Here's, here's how to know where your superiority list lies. It's where you become most defensive. So when you're pushed a little bit, of course I'm not stupid. I know today's trash day. I take out the trash. You're trying to hang on to something there, aren't you? You're trying to say, I am smart enough. You're trying to call me out that I'm not smart enough. I'm putting a fig leaf on to cover it and say, no, I am smart enough. We're doing that all the time. We're trying to cover. We're trying to say, I'm smart enough, I'm strong enough, I'm sure enough. And the reason that we're doing it, sometimes with so much emotion, is that deep down, we know we're not strong enough. We're not smart enough. We're not sure enough. Deep down, we know that the only way we ever get there is through the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And his is the only opinion of us that counts. And so, to the degree that we lean on the righteousness of Jesus is the degree that we will be lower in our defensiveness and more inclined to respond with humility and grace. Oh, thanks for the reminder. It's Wednesday. You see the gospel. It lifts the burdens of inferiority, and superiority off of us. And so, as we approach the table, takeaways, these two. Do you have a community? Do you have a church council in your life? You can go out in the lobby today and find out about 
Wednesdays at Waterstone, find about all our small groups that meet all around the city every night of the week. You can find out how to get into a community. They're just starting. You can do it today. And then secondly, do you proclaim and demonstrate the gospel of community? Will you this week? Will you this week continue to develop your heart more in line with the gospel? Jesus alone, grace alone, through faith alone. That's at the core what my heart needs and what's going to form me. I hear the Savior say, Thy strength indeed is small. Child of weakness, come and pray. Find in me your all in all. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left the crimson stain. He washed it white as snow.